Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best coaches in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier men's lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. This show is about you, and we're here to help you become the best man you can be in every area of your life. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some killer free ebooks as well as drills and exercises that'll help you become more charismatic and confident by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you're new to the show but you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, listen to the toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. That's where you'll get the fundamentals of dating and attraction such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, all that stuff that's more important than you might think. We've got boot camps running every single month here in California. Details at theartofcharm.com, and I'm looking forward to meeting all of you guys here at The Art of Charm. Enjoy. A little bit of a bonus here today. I actually saw this answer on Quora from someone named Charlie Tips about how to raise your kids to be billionaires. So I actually grabbed him for a quick interview. We talk about how to educate your kids to be billionaires, and I put that in air quotes because the amount of money really doesn't matter. Talk about why public schools actually teach poor mindsets inadvertently how a 12-year-old kid created his own high school education packed with world travel and won two Emmys by age 30, and a couple of core takeaways from the article, such as don't send your kids to prep schools, they're just public schools on steroids, teaching generosity, love of work, and how to be worthy of wealth, and how trading time for money is a losing battle, and how a total schlub learned the skills and mindset of capitalism and put that into action for success. So enjoy this brief little bonus interview with Charlie Tips. Basically, the the whole smooth operator thing, uh-huh. is kind of, we call it hiding the broccoli because what it means is, you know, guys go, I want to get girls, I want to get girls. And we're like, hey, man, we'll teach you how to get girls. And they're like, great, great. Okay, where do I sign up? And we're like, well, wait, first of all, if you want to get a great girl, you got to be a great guy. And they go, oh, okay, how do I do that? And then we go, all right, well, oh. you, have your, you have your business together, you have your health together, do you have your investments together? Are you social? Do people like you? Do you have a healthy social circle? You know, right, are you I, taking I, care of yourself? I get it entirely. I get it entirely. I've got a great uh, anecdote for you that was actually on Quora. Okay. Uh, when I was a 16-year-old stock clerk, Billy Upchurch in the back room, when we had one of our get-togethers, asked Frank Laporte, who was the head stock boy, 17 years old. He said, Frank, you're not so good looking. How do you get all the pretty girls? And Frank says, well, beautiful girls have lots of options. If you want to be with them, you have to make yourself her best option. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much what it comes down to. Well, that's what I thought. I thought the heavens had opened and I was going to leave adolescence to become a smooth operator. But then it dawned on me, I don't know how to become their best option. But I was... I was convinced he was right, so I worked at it for a few years, and it came along. That's great. I mean, it's but the key is you worked at it for a few yeah. years, right? <laughs> it a lot of guys be a lot more work than I thought. Yeah, I mean, a lot of guys they they think of they think about this, and they're like, "Well, some people are born with it, and some people aren't, and some people, you know, they learn it from somewhere, and it's not something you can learn on your own." But that sort of segues nicely into what we wanted to talk about, which was. 
that and I saw to give the listener a brief intro. I saw I I love Quora because I don't know how they do it, but somehow I mean, how did you even find out about Quora? It seems like there's just a bunch of amazing people on there that aren't really anywhere else on the internet. So it's a great collection of really smart folks. Yeah, I'm impressed, especially on some of the topics. Like uh, my oldest son is in film, and I've looked there a few times, and there are some you know well-known celebrities openly giving really good advice. And that's yeah. kind of impressive. And the, on the topics I hang out on, that's not so much the case. But um, uh, I found out about Quora through a stray remark, someone simply saying, and, you know, top websites like Facebook, Twitter, and Quora. And I thought, Quora, what the hell is that? So I looked it up, and you can't keep me from giving an opinion on anything. So there I was. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, it's it's pretty great because uh, it's it's just like I, you know, I look up what's it like to be in space, and you know, Neil Armstrong will answer it or something like that, you know. And it's like, geez, yeah, how they get the how they make that happen, or or um, what's it like to to feel, you know, the, like you've lost everything, and you hear something from like somebody who's just like gone through the civil war in Rwanda or something. What's it like to be in prison? And there's a prisoner answering it. I mean, it's just amazing stuff. Usually that would just get a bunch of weird speculation on any other part of the internet or people lying about it or, or whatever. Uh, And so you had had a really interesting answer on there. Uh, What was the question? Do you remember? Uh, Yeah. What are good ways to prepare my kids to be billionaires? Right. And so what are good ways to prepare my kids to be billionaires? That I thought I thought the question originally was was ridiculous, but uh, your answer was not. It had so many upvotes, I had to read it. And to give a little background on you, I mean, you've been run, you've run a few businesses. You're a partner in a retail business that you grew from a quarter million to ten million. So you're you're not just shooting this out of uh, the wrong end. You know, you're you're talking about this from some pretty good perspective. And I, I thought your answer was interesting because I fully expected it to say send them to the best private schools you can and then make sure they learn multiple languages and have a stay-at-home teacher that teaches them how to play the violin. You know, I basically I expected you to just tell me what Asian parents do. <laughs> um, and and uh, I thought it was interesting because you said there's, first of all, rightly so, there's few more topics controversial, more controversial than how to become wealthy and raise your kids. So how to raise your kids to become wealthy is kind of like that double whammy and a lot of people are dying to learn. A lot of people are, are just going to fire from the hip and, and be angry about it. But you, you, look, you made a good point that the strongest enthusiasm comes from the emerging, emerging economies of China, the Middle East, India. So tell us a little bit about how, how did you even, first of all, formulate this answer? Because you, have, you, know, you counted the number of billionaires in the world, and then you formulated essentially a strategy. Well, it's... Um... It's how I raised my own children, and so we were making it up as we went along, and I was not entirely confident, so it registered with me. And when I say raising our own children, my goal was so that they would be able to do what they love uh, as they grew older and be able to find their passion in life. So it was really about immersing them in rich experiences that would let them find their passion. And then having been a businessman all my life and raised by, you know, 
uh, an entrepreneur father, I had a lot of that perspective in me. And I've never thought it shameful at all to become rich because in doing so, you're making a lot of other people rich and you can't become prosperous without sharing prosperity very widely. So it's always to the good for society uh, when people want to. But if you have the skills to do that, you also have the skills to make positive impact without necessarily enriching yourself. Sure. Yeah. And it's it's an interesting point because you said that you counted the number of billionaires. You said there's 1,675 billionaires in the world. So the odds are against you. That's the um, new figure. It's up 15 percent, which I, that's, I credit to my answer. Yeah, of course. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You credit to your answer. And it's actually kind of amazing because if it's up 15 percent, that's essentially I mean, that's. That's nothing short of amazing because that means that over the last few years, so much wealth has been created. And I'm guessing these people are probably in China. Well, so much money has been created, and money being created without wealth being created is just inflation. So it remains to be seen how much is true wealth and how much is just inflation. Sure, I guess that makes sense, yeah. The advice is really about, as you said, how to become or raise your kids to become what you call a vector force. What is a vector force? Because, one, I've never heard that. It's a great term. It sounds almost like a comic book superhero you know, team. But it really is – it's pretty close, actually. Well, it, it's a uh, – yeah, I, I adopted that from something I learned in physics, and it actually is a little bit of a corruption of the idea of physics – in physics, you have scalar forces, which means it's got force but no direction. And a vector force is a force with a direction. So uh, it's a simple concept. So I, I tend to categorize people as inert, meaning it's just a person <laughs> who's living a life. Right, not a compliment. <laughs> yeah, you know, not out with any agenda. A scalar force is someone who brings energy to a situation. You know, they're the life of the party or can be counted on in a, you know, in a casual circumstance to be a good contributor and, and who stand out for their energy. And, you know, that's about one in every dozen people you meet. And then a vector force is, is a rarity. I, I'm, I say one in a thousand, but I have no idea. And that's somebody who can pursue a purpose with passion and draw other people in their wake, you know, to create a cause, to create an enterprise, to, you know, to make things happen on a scale that benefits, you know, lots of people. Okay. So you said essentially that vector force is, is one in a thousand people who can, who have the imagination to conceive of a worthy goal and then have the ability on top of that to pull others in their wake to achieve it. Exactly. And that's the unlikely combination, right? Well, it's a rare combination. It seems to me it should be much more likely because, you know, we, we give a lot of lip service to that very idea as a society. But our nothing in our society or little in our society actually prepares people to do that. Yeah, that it's it's interesting because it, you, you actually pointed something out that I thought was pretty insightful as well. You said, contrary to the mindset of many Americans especially – Becoming a billionaire is a per se good, which means it is good in, in the absolute sense because it is impossible to do this to achieve billionaireism or whatever without making scores of others rich and providing a good livelihood for thousands of others. 
and a valuable service or product to millions of others. So why do you think Americans don't necessarily see becoming a billionaire as a per se good? It seems weird because we are exactly the type of society that should, in theory, value somebody making tons of money and helping other people change the world, et cetera, et cetera, as a result. Well, we're schizophrenic about it. Uh, you know, we have plenty of examples of Jobs and Wozniak and Gates and Smith and other entrepreneur teams who have, you know, changed the way we live all for the better and creatively and, and, and powerfully. They have empowered us to be more of what we want to be. And it seems almost as a counterweight that we grow to, um, not appreciate it at the same time we do appreciate it. It's it's um, amazing to me how is with with those examples before us of the positive power of entrepreneurship, more and more people seem to be weighing in against it. Why do you think that is? Well, one is uh, progressive politics because you know they're taught that profit is is greed and wrong. And uh, as the number of progressives grow, the you know they really do not appreciate commerce and enterprise. But that's really begging the question because why are they growing when when commerce and enterprise are being successful? They seem to be growing, and all I can point to is the you know back in the industrial revolution when the first big growth spurt of economy happened, you had the Luddites grow up, you know, opposing it and grew as a large percentage of the population. So I, I really don't know what mass psychology leads to that, but it's there. I think it's what happens when your dad's rich, but he didn't love you enough or something <laughs> like that. I mean, I'm going to get so much hate mail for that, but I just don't even care. Um, <laughs> so essentially becoming, going back to it, this becoming this vector force that we talked about before depends on combining the power of Inter- what you call interdirected and outer directed parenting and education. So interdirected spirit, imagination, values, purpose, risk, ambiguity, and wisdom. Outer directed things like competence, skills, know how, practical knowledge, expertise, etc. So in the states, we are split, as you pointed out, with some parents leaning towards an inner approach and some to outer. And in India the culture promotes a dual approach, not surprising one of the largest and fastest growing economies. So you said you expect to see more billionaires coming from India in the future as they learn the skills of capitalism. I'm sure that's the case, just based on sheer numbers and sheer uh, sheer willpower. I mean, everybody has seen the, the ability of India to produce and become great, as well as China. Now, the skills of capitalism are a mindset available to literally anyone. That is an interesting point, especially as a guy who visits North Korea regularly, I think that that's an interesting point, that capitalism is essentially a mindset plus skill set, not this big, grandiose way of being per se. Did I mention to you my my guru of capitalism, the one I learned from? You did not. I had a retail business, and we lost our window washer. So just at the point where I was starting to look through the yellow pages, this absolute nebbish walks through the door. He's five foot two and with strawberry blonde curly hair, and he's wearing cranberry colored corduroy hip huggers. And he asked me if he can wash our windows. And I said, sure. And he asked me if he could have an advance then. And I said, what for? He said, I need to go buy the tools. 
And so I could see he was so much of a nebbish that he wasn't using guile on me. So I said, come with me. And I walked him across town to the janitorial supply shop, and I bought him a squeegee and a bucket and the soaps and, you know, the tools of his trade. And he came back and washed my windows. And I paid him $20, and he was, a, he was very slow, but he was meticulous, and he did a nice job. So there were three other stores on the block, and I knew they – they were missing our window washer guy. So I introduced him around and he made a nice chunk of change that day. Plus he had the tools. Well, the next time he comes in, he's wearing a suit and he's got a guy in tow with him. And he says, this is the guy who will be washing your windows, but you can pay me. <laughs> and of course, you know, window washing, we just pay out of the drawer in cash. Sure. And off he goes and he leaves this guy behind. Well, next thing you know, I'm seeing, his guys all over the downtown area and in shopping centers. Wearing cranberry hip huggers with a uniform, right? <laughs> <laughs> they weren't dressed as poorly as him. And the suit he was wearing, I mean, looked like, oh my God, it was it was terrible, but at least, you know, he looked <laughs> he looked like a businessman all of a sudden. He, he looked like a window washing pimp, which is so what he was. <laughs> I started doing the math in my head, and this is back in the early eighties, and the guys probably pulling in $250 a day, maybe $400 a day, which is like $400 then would be like $1,000 a day now. Oh, yeah. That's so fantastic. I'm looking at my $7 an hour employees, all of whom are college graduates, and going, what is wrong with our education? And then I look at myself struggling in a retail business, barely eking out a profit, and go, what's wrong with me? If this guy can figure it out, I mean, this guy had a grocery bag full of books like The Godhead and Guide to Spiritual Mastery. I mean, he this was not a sophisticated, college-educated guy, and yet he got how to multiply the value of his time. So well, I learned from good. this guy. He was my my mentor. That's that's impressive. He was sort of like your 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 muse, right? He inspired you. Yeah, he inspired me, I and mean, he caused me to stop and evaluate the direction of my life. And anybody could have, you know, any of my employees could have looked at him and said, hey, I'm making $7 an hour. This guy's making like $100 an hour <laughs> and, you know, figured it out. But they didn't. That's amazing. I mean, I, I love it. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. 
Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. All right, let's get back to the show. I love it. I want to get into some of the, the more practical stuff as well. I mean, you said it requires a grub steak, and the more the better but even zero will do to a true entrepreneur. So, well, he started with he started in my debt. He walked in and asked for an advance to be able to become an entrepreneur. Right. So, it doesn't get any more fundamental than that. Your dad told you that no one will ever get rich working for a living, although it doesn't mean you won't have to work your butt off. That's a great quote. I think we might even use that for the show. because um, it's very true. If we, as soon as you trade time for money, you you lose. There's no way to get rich uh, trading your time for money. Time is really the only wealth. And if you want to get wealthy materialistically, you have to trade your time for lots of money. My corporate attorneys in California used to tell me they were going to have to raise their rates to some new ungodly figure. And I would just laugh and tell them, well, you've got 3,000 units a year to sell if you want to work yourself into an early grave, so charge what you want. <laughs> Unbelievable. And, and your kids, they went to something called Peninsula School, which some people probably know about. I had to look it up. It's essentially an anti-public school that you think was just absolutely critical to their development. Well, it, it was a Quaker school started in uh, 1925 by the Duvenecks in California, and they were the original founders of the Farm Workers Union. And they were impressed about all these new notions of Dewey education, John Dewey and, and public education, which was just filtering out to the West Coast. And they wrote John Dewey and said, if you uh, send us one of your top students, uh, she can have a job as director of our school and, you know, we'll pay a nice salary. So he sent somebody, and within just two or three weeks, they paid her way back to Chicago and decided that if they did everything pretty much exactly the opposite, they would be better off. And that's the notion of the school. It's the anti-Dewey school. There are no desks, you know, no columns and rows of desks, no bells to start the period, no, you know, testing, no grades. It's an anti-school. It sounds awesome because those are all the things I hated about school. And when I joined, we had a pilot program in my high school. We called it Flex. And essentially what that was was you could come in, choose what you wanted to work on. And we had student-run electives. We All classes, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, we all studied the same thing. We were all in the same room. We were all hanging out in work groups together. You had projects where you had to work with freshmen if you were a senior and vice versa. And when I went to college, people were getting hit with reality. And I was like, this is just like flex, only the classes are bigger. And I crushed it in university. And looking back, if I'd had that my whole life growing up, I probably wouldn't even need to go to college. I would have been job ready by high school. Exactly. Uh, you know, my great great grandfather, the first uh, in my line born in this country, was orphaned at six. And he went to live with an uncle in his attic. In, this is in rural Texas. And um, at 12 years old, he was given a 
Porter, which was good for about a week of room and board back then, and told him he was a man and on his own. And he'd had three years of schooling, uh, basically third, fourth, and fifth grade in a little red schoolhouse, which was, you know, education back then. He became a tenor, <coughs> excuse me, a tenor's apprentice. Uh, what is that? A tenor? Tenor. Like, um, like putting things in cans? Actually putting tin roofs on houses under oh, okay. the blazing Texas sun for a dime a day. And um, you could live on a nickel a day. So he started saving his money. And pretty okay. soon he was a dollar a day employee and he was saving his money. And in his early 20s, he opened a retail business in a small town in Texas. And then the farmers trusted him more than they trusted the bank, and he had a safe. So they would bring their walk-around money into town and keep it in his safe, and he became a banker. And in his early 40s, he was a millionaire. So as, wow. a, as an orphan, with three years of informal education, he was on the road to prosperity because back then thrift paid off, and he was thrifty, and he was honest. And it all worked, you know, it worked to his advantage. I think a lot of the social cost of education is those years of delay. And that's one reason I was not hesitant to put my kids into work environments rather than school environments. I think you learn a lot more in a work environment than you do in a school environment. Now, let's talk a little bit about your kids just so guys don't go, what's this guy yapping about jordan doesn't even have kids either what are they talking about your one of your kids travis 31 two emmys for his work as a cameraman and producer on deadliest catch he's working on game of arms i don't even know what that is uh that's not game of thrones right game of no, arms. no game of arms is a, a new hit show that's really taking off it's a arm wrestling competition <laughs> Wow. Okay. And I mean, I, forgive me for laughing. I don't watch a lot of TV. I'd never <clears throat> heard of this, and that sounds hilarious. Yeah, it's uh, it's actually a spellbinding show, and the camera work, you know, his area of it is kind of phenomenal. When they get into the actual bouts, it's like the movie Three Hundred. It's really, you know, start and stop motion, and uh, it's really a grabber. And these guys, you can imagine, are big, strong guys, big hulks. And um, the they are amazing. You know, he's, he called me when he first got it and said, I'm going out to shoot for a day on this arm wrestling show. And he didn't think much of it. He called me back afterward and said, this show is going to be big. These guys are really characters. They really come across well. And it has been a big hit. I mean, it, it's so interesting because the way he got there, I mean, to, to have two Emmys, to get this, put this in perspective, I meet people that have Emmys semi-regularly because I my office uh, for The Art of Charm is in Hollywood on Hollywood Boulevard. The All those awards are there, and I'll often go to a bar, and there'll be somebody sitting there with an Emmy uh-huh. on the table buying drinks for people, and I'll, I have pictures with random Emmys with people that I've never seen or heard of, especially the sound and lighting guys because they're not – celebrities outside the industry so they'll sit there with their emmys on the table and let you hold it and run around with it and you know pose for pictures with it and they'll talk to you about what they do and what their work is and it's always like you know the lighting guy who worked on something in australia and like no one's ever heard of him but he's the guy right so it's your son travis is in that area and you got him there because 
Yeah, and so to have that at 31 is my, my original point. To have that at 31 is amazing because everybody I bet that had these is like they're graying out already because they're the best at what they do because they've done it for 20 years. You know, to have the level of talent, to have the foresight to get these at 31 and get two of them is incredible. And at age 12, you'd send him to spend a summer with an old college friend of yours who essentially gave him a million-dollar mentoring. Travis didn't go to high school. He he founded his own school somehow instead, and he was traveling the Maya being an assistant to a 95-year-old witch doctor. He worked with an author, Victoria Schlesinger. He spent months in Luzern captaining a dive boat, mapping wrecks in uh, Fjordstadsee, wherever that is. I don't even know where that is, uh, but that's how you say that. You, you also can call it Lake Lucerne. Oh, you can. Okay, that <laughs> clears it up. And uh, and he made a documentary of a group of students traveling for a month in Cuba. This was his high school. That was his high school. At 12 years old, he, he was always carrying school. a camera around and... I know a little bit about a lot of things, but I don't know anything about cameras. So I called my old friend Robert Burns, who had been art director on Texas Chainsaw Massacres back when I lived in Austin. And he was a 50-year-old bachelor at the time. I said, Bob, I'm going to send my 12-year-old out to work with you this summer. And he says, like hell you are. What could go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, no, really, think about it. He said, I have, forget it. So I worked on him a few days, and he finally came around to the idea. And then I'll tell you a little little anecdote. Um, the last day before Travis gets on the airplane, I remember that Bob has this incredible temper. If he does, if he gets three bad hands of cards in a row, he throws all the cards around the room and screams and stalks and storms. And so I said, Travis, I hate to tell you, but I just remember Bob has a terrible temper. I don't think he'll try to hurt you, but if he goes off, just put yourself against the wall and, you know, be quiet. <laughs> and he's, you know, his eyes get big and he gulps. <laughs> he's 12 years old. Right. So the first night, Bob picks him up at the airport, and the next morning he sits him down at his bench where he makes special effects. And it's got everything, routers and dremels and latex molds and you I mean you can make anything at his bench. It's it's the most tricked out workbench you've ever seen. And he's puttering away just as happy as can be and all of a sudden the door flies open and there's Bob with a sixteen inch long pipe wrench, red in the face, mad at him, and throws this pipe wrench right at his chest. And it's the balsa wood pipe wrench he made for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh. (laughs) So it bounces harmlessly off his chest. But here, just two days before, I told him Bob has this temper. And part of the beauty of it was he he said, I saw what it was like to die. I didn't even raise my arms to stop it because I knew I was dead. And this is a 12-year-old kid. That's pretty, I mean. Intense. Bob was just totally inappropriate with him. But it. It worked magic. I mean, he got so many revelations from Bob. And Bob was a perfectionist. You know, Bob just demanded he demanded adult work from him. And Bob would keep him up until the middle of the night watching famous old horror movies with the actual storyboards in his lap and going, this camera angle is because they want you to have suspense coming you know, from this direction. And that camera angle is for this reason and this lighting. And... You know, that's that's a priceless education. 
Yeah, I would agree. I mean, to work with somebody like that at that age or even twice that age is something that most people never get. Well, ever. The thing is, they hit it off like crazy. They were, they were, they became close buds, and Bob used him whenever he could get his hands on him. And um, so every year there was at least a month or two that he was with Bob, sometimes three months. And um, it was, I mean, he got to meet George Bush. He got all, all kinds of things happened courtesy of Bob. And um, Bob was always teaching. So it was, it was a great relationship. And the, the thing that people need to understand is that was just there for the asking. I hadn't talked to Bob in 25 years when I called him. And uh, all I had to do was ask. And once Bob realized, hey, this is my chance to pass along what I've learned to someone who can carry it on, he wanted as much of it as he could get. Right. Yeah. Legacy is greater than currency at some point, especially. Exactly. Legacy is greater than currency. Yeah. That's one of my personal mottos. Whenever people go, why don't you do this, this and this and this, you'll make more money. I'm like, I love what I'm doing. You know, whenever, when I'm gone, this, I mean, maybe I'm being grandiose, but when I'm gone, these several hundred hours so and counting of things of knowledge that I've accumulated and shared with the world, they're still going to be there. Well, that that's very wise of you, Jordan. And what I'll add is other people should grasp that for, for their children's sake, because there are opportunities out there, you know, for people like Bob to take your child under their wing and your child gets the invaluable experience of working with another adult, of traveling, of having adult responsibilities, and learning from the best. Yeah, it's it's really something that kids never get. And, and to to offer this as a value add on the other person to the other person as well is brilliant, right? It's it's, it's probably surprisingly easy to arrange once you can it's, show the other party. It's exactly amazingly it. easy to arrange. We never had a we never had a difficulty with all three of our sons. Now your other son Zach, he's twenty seven now. He was a serious baseball player, so he had to go to high school. But he played in Beijing. He ended up finagling his way into a high school and ended up playing in Japan. He he was the first white or non Japanese. I shouldn't say white guy, but first non Japanese gaijin to play with them. And then of course he had those months in Tokyo, Mexico, Buenos Aires, Paris and Ruin, where he studied for his MBA, and now he's all over the world working in international mar- marketing for uh, working in international marketing for a startup. And, you know, a lot of these guys are doing pretty well for themselves considering their age. I mean, 27, head of international marketing, usually you outsource that to somebody who's done it for the last 15 years. You've got another kid, Keaton, 25, lives in SF. I, sh- I should probably give him a call because that's where I'm at. He's got his own firm. He's right near Google, of course, which is where I live as well. And uh, he's really all over the place. I mean, doing a lot of really amazing stuff. These are not your average kids going, well, I work at Chase right now, but I'm looking to maybe do something else later. Don't know what it is. I mean, these kids figured out their passion when they were before they probably had any hairs to shave. Well, the first two actually were simple. I mean, Zachary's first word was ball, and he was a ball player from then on, I mean, he just, anything to do with ball, and he was on it. And like I said, Travis, by the time he was 12, was carrying a, an old video camera with him everywhere he went. So 
they their passion showed up early. Keaton, the third child, was the interesting one because we used to torment him over his inability to tell a story. But it turns out that telling stories is his gift. And once he learned animation, it turns out his problem was his stories were so full of detail in his mind, he couldn't get it all out. And he would get lost in the weeds and get down in the minutia. But once he could animate his stories, they were incredible. So yeah. it's hard to know yeah. what a child's passion is. And sometimes it'll surprise you. But you got to give them uh, the space within which to, you know, discover their passion themselves. Sometimes couple... it pops right out at you, and sometimes it surprises you. All right, let's get back to the good stuff. There's a couple quick takeaways that I definitely want to to bring across here to the audience, and, and these are from your core article. Don't send them to public school. Don't send them to public schools that are just prep schools, like you said, public schools on steroids, where they just cram more curriculum down your throat because they screen for smarter kids. So they put you through the public school system essentially just faster and do some college prep stuff so that you do better when you get to university, big deal. Um, And teaching them a love of work because although after getting rich you can coast some, getting rich takes work. So you have to be able to put in the hours, period. There's no getting around that. Uh, you got to teach them a love of people. You've got to – you mentioned the only way that you get rich is by serving the real needs of others. And I thought it was interesting that your household essentially had people stranded you met at the airport, Japanese homestay girls, au pairs, homeless guys dropping by for a shower and a meal, Chinese physicists, Eritrean gorillas. I mean you just – you were an open sort of open household with a lot of interesting types that exposed your kids to a lot of really interesting stuff that people normally don't get. Well, yeah, I was known as crazy – uh, that way, and my wife even hired a cartoonist to draw a cartoon of the Char- Charles Tips household for wayward foreigners and animals because I was adopting everything I could get my hands on. Excellent, and teaching generosity and teaching what calls the mental what you call the mental nexus. What is the mental nexus? That's the real heart of entrepreneurship. Um, it's the mental framework that equips you to go out and take the kind of risks you have to take as an entrepreneur and to withstand the kind of uh, buffeting you get in return. And I, I, I've always said that entrepreneurship is worse than being a, um, a pediatric oncologist, you know, where you have to deal with people's tragedies all your life, you know, day to day, you go in and watch dying children. And in entrepreneurship, you have to deal with tragedies that you cause for other people. Everybody who's looking at you, you know that they are dependent on you for payroll. Yeah, that's for sure. And it's a, it's a burden and not everybody's equipped to deal with it. And, you know, especially a couple of mistakes or a couple of strokes of bad luck and, you know, people lose their paychecks and they're not happy with you. So it it takes a certain frame of mind to be able to withstand those kind of issues. And it takes a certain frame of mind to be able to make decisions on partial information. You know, decisions that set your future, you never have full information in an entrepreneurial environment. You have to make 
educated guesses all the time and stake your whole future on it. A lot of people simply are not comfortable doing that. That's for sure. And, you know, you when I asked for practical exercises, one of the things that you gave me was really interesting. You said you got to visualize. How do you envision work for yourself? Most people envision it all wrong, and I know I was guilty of this as well. Before, when we think of working at a job, we always envision creating a job for ourselves and hiring ourselves, which essentially puts us back on the slow treadmill to burnout, selling time for money. So the only way off that treadmill is to figure out how to keep it giving you money even when you aren't running on it, which is what your nebbish friend did by hiring other people to run it. And so only that equity mentality can reliably get you wealth. And that's such a huge key takeaway. If I'd known that 20 years ago, I'd be podcasting from my jet right now. <laughs> exactly. You're exactly right, Jordan. So the other thing that you'd mentioned is steal with your eyes. I thought this was interesting. What do you mean by that? Because lie, cheat, and steal was one of the other, one of the other value points in, in the Quora article. Obviously, you don't mean rob your way to wealth, but... What do you mean by steal with your eyes? Yeah, my eyes can't carry much but information, no. and it's okay to steal information. Uh, people ignore the world around them. And, um, you know, I noticed this as a boss because uh, on my desk would be a few key things that meant something. You know, everybody has a few trinkets and mementos that mean something to them around their office. And the inert people walk in and walk out and never notice them. You're giving away information about yourself, and they don't take it. The scalar people walk in and say, oh, you're into lacrosse, or you're into, oh, you coach a baseball team, or whatever the mementos you've got are, and start a conversation. Well, that's why people are putting those mementos out, is so people will understand what they're about. So um, basically, steal with your eyes just means notice what's going on around you, and Figure out how to make it work for you. And uh, it works in sales. It works in uh, personal relations. It works in every context. Just pay attention to what's going on and figure out what that means. Excellent. Well, I, I really appreciate your time. I think that's great. Is there anything that you want to sort of leave us with that you haven't touched on just yet? Yeah, I would add just because it's uh, the art of charm and what your uh, focus is that one of the bullet points was a person has to be worthy. And one of the things that really impressed me is working with venture capitalists. And I work with some of the top ones on Sand Hill road uh, there in Menlo park, California. Sure. They are extremely impressive men, a few women, but all of them extremely impressive. And you have to be really worthy you have to come across as a no-nonsense, no-downside person for them to put money behind you. And it was funny, the first time I put a deal together, uh, one of the VCs was kind of appointed as this talk person, and he shows up in my office, clearly nervous, and he says, uh, Charles, you know, we wanted to talk to you, and I'm, I'm here to talk to you, and he hemmed and hawed, and he said, when you're the CEO of a company, well, pretty girls will be throwing themselves at you. And that leads to very bad things. <laughs> and uh, I didn't want to interject anything. I wanted to hear what all he had to say. But he hemmed and hawed his way through a sermon about, you know, not 
messing around with uh, or taking advantage, sexual advantage of being a CEO. And then I let him know that I was happily married and had no such intention, and he was relieved. But that's the kind of thing that's on the mind of people who put money behind your projects is to know that you are that caliber of person. Interesting. <laughs> Didn't see that one coming. Did not see that one coming. Thanks so much, Charlie Tips. I appreciate it. I'm going to link to your Quora answer in the show notes as well, and I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jordan. I enjoyed it. All right, show feedback and guest suggestions. We rely on you guys to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let us know at jordanh at theartofcharm.com. Boot camp details for our live programs also at theartofcharm.com, and that's where you're going to find links to us on Twitter, Facebook, and other social media as well. If you're listening to this but you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher or something like that, then that needs to change. Getting our shows delivered free to your phone or computer is the best way to make sure you don't miss a thing. You can do that by going to iTunes and searching for the Art of Charm podcast or by going to theartofcharm.com slash iTunes and clicking subscribe. That's really it. And you guys can help us. Subscribe in iTunes and give us a five-star rating. Write something nice and we will love you forever. Just go to iTunes.com slash The Art of Charm and it'll take you right there. When you write us a review, it not only makes us feel proud, but it helps keep us up in the ranks so that other people who can use this information can find the show more easily to get the credible advice that they need. It's also the best way to support the show other than purchasing products and training from us. So tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week, go out there and get social, and leave everything better than you found it.